Uh, one last call. Anybody want any bourbon before we start? It's it's up to you though. Uh, whatever. If somebody, if if somebody else somebody, says yes, if I'll somebody say. says yes, I'll say. I'm just, it's just, I mean, we're here. It might be too early for me, but I'll say sure. Three against five. There we go. I was say, you say I can do it. If you're gonna jump off the bridge. I'll jump off. The bridge. Yeah. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. So how much influence does the barrel have on the whiskey you drink? Well, if you talk to a lot of people in the industry, you'll get a survey of a rough estimate around 70% or more people say that flavor gets more extracted from the barrel. We've had a few coopers on the show to talk about the process. And even today's guest was back on episode 346. Please go make sure you listen to that one before this one. Because we were so amazed at some of his research, we wanted him to come back on the show to talk more about mind-blowing stave science. Andrew Wiebrink, he's the Director of Spirits Research and Innovation for Independent Stave Company. That means he leads up all the cool advancements on where barrel trends are heading. We talk about the current barrel shortage and if toasted products are the reason to blame. We also look at the future of where oak alternatives are heading and why we are now starting to see a trend of distilleries moving to char one versus char four. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Ben Jackson, who writes me on fredminnick.com. How does one warm up one's palate to handle a high-proof bourbon? For example, George T. Stagg at 130 proof I wouldn't think that if it was going to be your first sip of the evening, it would blow one's mouth off. I imagine that working your way up to this barrel-proof rarity might be better. But how to do it? Well, Ben, that's a very good question. And I will tell you that barrel-proof is really a new phenomenon. A new phenomenon in the sense that the distillers are offering it up. I don't think that the consumers have ever been like, no, we don't want barrel proof. Give us that 80 proof and 100 proof stuff. We just want that. I think that there's always been a demand for it. But up until recently, distillers have uh, gotten rid of the old adage that the higher the proof, the less responsible it is. You got to remember that alcohol is still very much a highly regulated entity, and people are still trying to overcome laws that were put on the books in the 1930s. And there's also the culture mindset. The culture mindset is, why are you drinking that stuff? There's high proof, then you must be a drunk. You know, so you are always battling that if you are in the industry. And in fact, up until a few years ago, Brown Foreman did not believe in barrel proof at all. But of course, the market has dictated that barrel proof is where it's at for many people. Because most importantly, no one's messing with it. The consumer is messing with the whiskey. So if you want to add ice to it, add ice. If you want to add water to it, add water. But once you add the water to it, proof it down, you cannot bring that up. And there's a lot of flavor to be had at those higher proof products. Now, to your question specifically, how do you work yourself to it? Well, let's be honest. Not everyone is a grizzled whiskey drinker or sipping at uh, the amount that, you know, Ryan... Kenny and I are doing it. So I would recommend absolutely 
working your way up to it or working yourself into the whiskey that is high proof. So if you can add a couple drops of water to your first taste, uh, one drop of water the next taste, and then have it at, at uh, barrel proof the next one, you know, that might get yourself acclimated to the proof. But the fact is, this is person dependent. Like, if you are someone that can just jump right into a cash drink bourbon, your first go around, you would be a unicorn in the world of tasting cash drink. Most of us, most people have to work themselves into it. But I just think that the the way to do it is to go with the bourbon that you have, add a little water to it, decrease the amount of water the next tasting, and then have it a cash drink the next one. Now, chances are it's a highly allocated product. So what you could do in that situation is get an 80 proofer, 90 proofer, 100 proofer, and then have the cash strengther. But by the time you're four drinks in, you might be schlossed and gone with the wind. I mean, who knows? I don't know your alcohol tolerance. Everybody's different. But it really is important that you do give barrel strength a shot when your palate is acclimated. And if your palate cannot handle cash strength stuff, then maybe it's time to accept that, you know what, that genre is just not for you. And that's okay. But I will tell you, if you just add some water to it, bring that proof down a little bit, you'll find that experience is just as awesome as when you do get acclimated with the whiskey. But that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you want to be like Ben, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button. Hit me up with your question. And if I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Gift 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000273. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. 
They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails. There's spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back. It's another episode of Bourbon Pursuit coming at you. The whole team here today actually talking to a guest that has been on the show before where we got schooled on stave science and more. And it was so fascinating that we would come back and kind of talk about some more things that are happening in the world of cooperages, innovations that are also coming out of pretty much one of the largest cooperages that are out there within inside of the United States as well. And we'll be able to dive into to a lot of that. I know, Ryan, you were here last time with our guest and I think that's when we had some epiphanies start coming around of like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of things in just staves and wood that we didn't know about other than vanolins that you hear about on the, the 51% corn tours and stuff or like three that. and four char, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're like, wait, there's other chars and uh, there's all these other things you can do with a barrel. So I felt like we just scratched the surface. It was fascinating, you know, what our discussion last time. So uh, yeah, I felt like part two, maybe in part three would be uh, in order because there's so much that can go on inside the wood, the barrel, so many different, very different uh, fluctuations and variances and everything within the wood. So it's, and it's so important to the flavor of the, the whiskey. So uh, I think this will be another exciting uh, topic and episode for our folks. I think that also, also goes into like the, the idea that we always talk to different people. You'll talk to distillers, you'll talk to yeast people, you'll talk to the cooperages and they'll be like, we, we account for 90% of the flavor. Yeah. <laughs> it's always going to be like that, that back and forth. And, you know, Fred, we were together back on episode 185 talking to Brad Boswell, who's the CEO of Independence Dave. And I think that was one of the first times that we were able to kind of capture a lot of stories of stuff that's happening with us out of Independence Dave as well. Yeah. Independence Dave is an amazing company with a very interesting history. I've been out with their foresters cutting down trees before. I'm sure you have. Do you have your lumberjack outfit on ready to go? Uh, you have a story for every topic. You know, I, I will tell you right now, it like, you know, I'd cut down trees before, but cutting it down with like a forester, I mean, th those guys can cut a tree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a... And that's drop a, them exactly where it's, you want. It's amazing. And he was like, you might want to move over to the left a little bit. And I was like, oh, I'm way out of the way of where it's going to fall. I was like, yeah, but... That branch is going to hit right there, you know. But, you know, the whole thing is like it, it, the people who understand wood and uh, the science of this. And, you know, Independence Dave has like uh, so many patents and they've created all this technology. And they've been a lifeline for, for the bourbon and wine industry and scotch industries and tequila. I mean, they're a distiller's best friends. Yeah. Uh, when you were doing your forestry thing, was there a minimum length of beard that you had to have? When you're out there, actually, I think that was pre-beard for me, and the guy I was with didn't have a beard. But uh, yeah, there was no beards. No, no yeah, beardless. Uh, this was yeah, we were no. we were cutting trees in Indiana, so like you know, I think I think you have to go a little bit further west for the. Um, were, you at least were you at least wearing flannel or had an axe on your shoulder just to really set the scene here? Yeah, there were axes. And <laughs> okay, it, yeah, good. It, there was All an right. axe and in, in like just steel chains. It was like <laughs> really <laughs> you could shave with that axe. It was so sharp. Oof. Mm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I doubt they're cutting with axes. <laughs> they no. got a lot of barrels to make. <laughs> no. Well, when they need to like clean something up, they do. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll talk about that. Let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So making his return to the show, we have Andrew Wiebrink. He's the Director of Spirits Research and Innovation. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me again. And it's good to know that we've now clarified it that you are not a ghost hunter. 
right? Yeah, because that, 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 that is, was yeah, one of that was I, I still get that every now and then when they see the title on the business card. What? What do you do again? <laughs> Whiskey? <laughs> so for anybody that does remember the past episode, kind of give a little bit of background of sort of like your introduction into whiskey and kind of how you got into Independence Day as well. Yeah. So, I mean, my introduction with whiskey started quite some time ago. Uh, my father, uh, he was a lawyer for the state. And back then, before bourbon kind of had its resurgence, uh, his office were actually ex-Buffalo Trace warehouses. So he was right next door to the distillery. Now those are warehouses again, but my introduction came through him. So with him living so close to the distillery and he was kind of a lifelong bourbon fan, he got his Tennessee Squireship, which I still have in like 1972, mm. 73. So he was my introduction to bourbon. But as far as kind of an official career goes, uh, I was a mechanical engineer. And I think we talked about this last time. Uh, I had a bourbon and cigar review website during my engineering career, which was a long time ago. And then we worked on a machine that froze alcohol into ice cubes. And so I spent two years kind of studying alcohol behavior, I guess is maybe the best way to put it under certain conditions. And being already a fan, and now I got kind of like a formal introduction to the people that were in the industry through the promotion of that product. And as you guys know, the people in this industry are just awesome. I mean, I couldn't imagine being in another industry now. Like, it's just so good. So anyway. I know, I, uh, I've seen you at uh, watch your proper and a few other places around town now like everybody's kind of like mingles together it's a, just a good camaraderie it is it's a really really good camaraderie and that's what attracted me to it and i you know i said uh, okay i've had enough engineering so i quit uh, i saw the isc job um, and i said well i didn't really know it was for a coopers the way they described it was it sounded like it would, you'd be working for a distillery developing liquid streams and when i found out it was a coopers i was like wow that's that's really cool um and so through a few month long interview process with different members, I got the job and I was hit the ground running and that was seven years ago now. So I've been here for seven years. Do you remember part of the interview process? Like who was, who was the hardest on you? Uh, who, who you want to call out? Everybody was really great to be honest with you. No, it, was, no, it wasn't. I mean, is that, everybody is that was, strike two for me now? Company man. <laughs> yeah, no, everybody was really great. There was a lot of, that was the most surprising thing was, you know, I had to interview with like six or seven people and then I actually had to make my pilgrimage to the corporate office and interview Brad. And that was a little bit nerve wracking just because I knew who he was. He was kind of a, you know, celebrity in my eyes at that point, just cause you know, we had, you had seen him in magazines and interviews and that kind of thing. So, uh, that was a little bit intimidating, but no, he was great. And, uh, he called me out for wearing a hat to the interview. Uh, <laughs> oh my! He goes, do you, do you always wear hats to interviews? And I, I like said, your style. I would do the same. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, not nah, pretty much wear hats everywhere I go. And, uh, so, but other than that, no, it was, it's been great so far and seven years down and hopefully a lot more to go. And that's why we get laid back, Andrew. We get laid back Fred as well, because when Fred's around us, there's no ascot. No. It's just, yeah, it's, it's laid back thing. Fred. It's yeah. only on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a camera. He's got it on. <laughs> I wear ascots when I'm, when I'm out and about. I just, uh, you know, this, this morning I'd. I was getting ready and didn't feel like putting one on. <laughs> That's okay. We we want to make sure you're comfortable around here. That's what it comes down to. So as we kind of start thinking about uh, last time, you know, there's been a, a big shift in production. And by the way, I was looking, you were on episode 346 uh, last time you were on here. And there's been a big shift in regards of the amount of barrels that are being requested amongst the industry. I know that everybody is trying to ramp up production. There's new distilleries coming online all the time. What is ISC doing right now to be able to try and either look at this production and meet it or having to have some of those tough conversations? Yeah, I mean, it's been 
it's it's been a drastic change since the last time we were here. There's been a lot of new people come into the industry, um, seeing the success and of other different or different companies. And you know, essentially, it's you know we get these forecasts from the larger companies, and usually when one starts to expand, it's kind of like a little back channel. All the rest of them, it's an arms race. <laughs> yeah, start to ex- exactly start to expand. So we are finishing up our fourth domestic cooperage if you include our used barrel cooperage that we have in louisville to be our third new barrel cooperage but that's going to be in moorhead kentucky and that's going to be a monster so for us you know what it looks like is getting the projections and right now just building you know stave mills and cooperages as fast as we can so why why go like moorhead why not try to just keep building up the the central location or is it just like you're out of space or is it closer to other mills or to the forest or kind of figuring out like the best for logistics. No, you nailed it there. It's, it's a logistic thing. So you want to cut down on the transportation costs, you know, as much as you can. So building facilities next to where the wood is, is, is the best way to do that. So Moorhead, it's got a good workforce there. That's, you know, these days, that's another facet to that whole kind of, you know, the issue that we have with supply chain, you know, making sure there's a good workforce making sure there's wood. And of course we have our, our new stave mill, well, not new stave mill, but fairly new stave mill right there. So making sure that it's all kind of in a centralized space, you know, it, it does cut down on some difficulties and some costs. Yeah. So when everyone is growing, you know, like double digits and then Europe opens up or this and that, and then you got these new people coming on board and you're like looking at the orders now, but you're looking five, to like, I guess, how do you, cause you need the barrels like like yesterday when they're, you know, ramping up production, how, like how soon can you like really realistically turn around to meet that demand? You know, cause you're not only we're waiting on whiskey, but you're waiting on wood to grow. Yeah. The wood, I, I you know, I'm going to go ahead and say that the wood is not the issue. The issue is a production. I mean, it just, you know, you guys see, and I'm sure you guys have guests on that are, I mean, there's a lot of distilleries in the works, if not coming online right now, but there's a lot of distilleries, you know, you talk to the guys at Vendome and they're, They've got a little bit of a waiting list. Like what? A couple of years. <laughs> yeah. With all like the that. column distillations. And and really what it comes down to is that it just, you know, in order to build a cooperage, you have to have stave mills and they can build distilleries way faster than we can build cooperages and stave mills. I mean, one of the reasons for that is that, you know, we build all of our equipment in house, as you said, you know, before, like with all the patents, like all the equipment that you see, most of it, I would say 90% of it is built by ISC engineers. So you know, that gives us quite a bit of a competitive advantage. And the one thing it does is it helps us out with wood savings as well, just from the technology that we developed. Uh, so implementing that technology takes quite a bit of time just because the machines have to be built by us in house. I think a good kind of level set for a lot of listeners out there, maybe even myself too, is explain what the stave mill actually does compared to the cooperage. Is it okay. just the actual treatment of the raw materials and then it comes into the cooperage to be actually built into the barrel yeah yeah no so stave mills take the the fort the loggers you know they do their job they bring the logs to the stave mill we grade them we process them and then some of the stave mills will dry them other times they'll send the uh, the stacks of staves to the cooperages to be dry but essentially that's all stave mill does is it takes logs and turns them into either heading planks or state planks and then when they get to the cooperage we process them make them into a barrel and that's what the cooperage does. They they actually construct the barrel. Gotcha. So mm-hmm. they're taking all that raw, taking all the bark off and everything like that to be able to get your your nice stave. Right. So, you know, that's that's part of the slowdown is, you know, in order to have a functioning cooperage, you have to have stave mills that supply that cooperage, especially at the rate that we produce barrels. So that's 
part of the slowdown there is, you know, you got to build a couple stave mills before you go to Cooperage. It's like adding fermentation tanks, you know, before <laughs> you, you that's, expand that's, production. That's actually, gotta, no, it's not a bad analogy there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You talked about Moorhead having like better labor. And I remember when one of the shortages, there's been waves of different barrel shortages, but in 2009, 2009 to 2013, there's a pretty decent shortage and everyone was complaining like, no one will go out and cut trees anymore. Like, uh, where where are the labor issues in the cycle of of making barrels right now? As as far as you know, and I'm more on the research side, and I just kind of get that, you know, just from sitting in you know different meetings. So I'm I'm probably not the best person to give the most accurate information, but it seems to me that at this point, you know, we do have the labor shortage due to COVID. I think more people stayed home after COVID was all said and done. So that that is kind of an issue. We just didn't get the labor force back to full capacity. But, you know, I, I tend to think that it's, it's really not a barrel shortage issue. I mean, yeah, there's not enough barrels to go around, but we're making more barrels than we did last year. We're making more barrels than we ever had before. We're getting ready to put on, I, I, I tend to think it's more of like an overproduction problem. And maybe not, maybe overproduction is a whiskey overproduction word. or a barrel overproduction. No, a whiskey over, maybe it's not, maybe it's not an overproduction is not the wrong word, but they're just producing so much more whiskey now. You know, the demand is so much higher. So that overproduction might have you know somewhat of a negative connotation, but the demand is just so much higher. So I would probably say, like when you were talking about from the, the 09 to 13, which kind of predates my you know existence at ISC, that was more of a wood shortage, you know, not enough people to go out and cut down trees, that kind of thing. This is more of like, we just can't keep up with the way the industry is growing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, when someone like Heaven Hill announces they're going from – 1500 barrels and they're going to add another still to do another 1200 you know what's like they're probably like yes more money but oh shit more product we got to put how are we going to keep up with this right and you know there's a lot of you know another facet to this is you know i think a lot of people saw the success of certain contract distillers and they've tried to build on that business plan and a few of those have well not a few of those but a lot of people have outsourced production, got contracts and said, oh, we can expand our distillery and do contract distillation. And so, you know, that's another facet to it. A lot of people are doing production for people who want to start a brand, that kind of thing. Um, so it's not just product production, it's, it's contract production that's increased as well. Yeah, looking at yours truly, I guess. Yeah, we're part of the problem. Yeah, we blame us. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I'm not going to say you're part of the problem, but again, that's just, you know, there's a lot of people entering, you know, that space. Uh, and, you know, you have to provide for you know for those folks as well and typically the relationships and correct me if i'm wrong a lot of them are built on long-standing partnership that you've had with the distillery for a while so if a new distillery comes online and they're like hey we know that isc is the biggest and baddest in the business and i'm sure they probably can go to a lot of other people and think like hey can we go ahead and put an order for you know 100 barrels a month or something like that how hard is that to turn away or, or, or the, how those conversations happening? Well, you don't want to turn them away, but like you said, I see is, you know, Brad is hell bent on maintaining the relationships that he's built for decades. And yeah, I mean, if you've been with ISC for, you know, 50 years, you know, we're going to, we're going to take care of you. And if, you know, you're just coming on and we don't have any capacity, it's one of those difficult conversations. We say, Hey, listen, here's the deal. And here's the situation. And got your name down, uh, keep in touch with us. And, you know, we'll let you know as soon as, as soon as we get freed up. How much has toasting contributed to the problem? Oh, I like <laughs> that. Oh, man. Uh, well, and, and then it'll lead to my second question after you explain it. No, so just to give you an idea, as you know, I think we spoke on this last time, like toasted barrels have really, it's not nothing new. I'm sure you've been, you've yeah. been around for a long time. I mean, 
it's always been done, especially with the wine industry. But, you know, I think bourbon has kind of expanded past the, just the regular old char four barrel and people have started to experiment with different methods. Toasting is one of those. So, for instance, the only place that we do toasting right now is our Missouri Cooperage. We have on the bourbon side, maybe 20 something toasting pots. The new Cooperage that we're building has 80. Um, and then we're going to be hopefully adding maybe some way on down the road toasting to Kentucky Cooperage as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's. Big basis right now. Well, sometimes it's, you know, it's it's either, you know, it could be a 15-minute toast or it could be an hour and a half long toast. So that, that slows down things quite a bit. And yeah. as a second part, as a research guy, so what are you all doing to say, like, how can we maybe recreate toasting without having to create a whole nother double barrel or something? Or is there, or is there any way or technology that you can... That I mean, you, you, I agree with you because that's probably a big reason why you're seeing a lot of this production issues because a toasting barrel is only used for what, two, three, four months, and then it's gone versus if that was a, a regular char four barrel, you've got at least four years of, of life on it. So you're going through inventory a lot faster just on the toasting process side. Well... And to be fair, you know, we do have customers that order, you know, a toasted char three and they use that barrel for eight years. So that does happen. But one of the things that I've tried to do uh, in designing new toast profiles is we've done a lot of research on how toast profiles create extractives. And it's almost like charring to where you can go to a certain char level and then past that you really don't do any good. So we've done a lot of research and we've kind of figured, at least for bourbon, that we can shorten up the toast profile, go through a different range of temperatures and utilize that a little bit more efficiently and reduce the time on the toasting pot. So, you know, a lot of the times the toast profiles end up being, you know, 45 minutes to 50 minutes to up to over an hour. Now we're starting to get a little bit more efficient in how we do things and how we design the toast profiles to where we get that down to about 25 to 35 minutes and still get the same extractive content. And let's never forget that this whole toasting double barrel phenomenon, it's driven by marketing, you know, the, the, the labeling and everything. A lot of that stuff... A lot of those barrels are already already in the process of, of being created, you know. So marketing is a big driver, and the demand on those toasted barrels are crazy. So that's probably a lot of a lot of it's a lot more labeling than anything. One of the things that I, I want to chat with you about is the the cooperage industry has grown. There's there's a ton of coopers right now that there's people like building them left and right to supply different distillers and. And I think it's it's kind of hurting the uh, the the whiskey industry because there's a lot of bad wood getting in circulation. And I, I wanted to ask you, like, what is what causes? Some people will define it as like a young craft note. I I would say it's more of a, a throwback to like green. It's like what is causing some of the you know more unwanted woodier notes not the not the buttery oak note that kenny likes but the green sweet, it's a sweet oak the sweet oak not the sweet oak note but the the like green almost like you're eating a you know a microscopic worm in the whiskey or something like that mm, that sounds where, good. where does microscopic that come from? worms yeah it's it, I'm, I'm not exactly sure about that tasting note and i can't speak for other <laughs> but um i can't speak for other cooperages but you know isc you know we've still maintained our standards on you know how all the trees are that we cut down and then we also maintain our seasoning standards you know i don't know if other cooperages are cutting down younger trees i know that past 50 years of age which is considerably a young tree we go for at the very minimum 80. But the extractive concentration or the, I guess, the ratio of different extractives in the tree can vary mm. up to 50 years. Past that, they remain pretty stable. So it could be a combination of, you know, they might be taking some younger trees that have actually grown pretty quickly. 
still getting a good yield from them. And then, you know, a good bottleneck in the industry is the seasoning time. You know, our minimum barrel is six months, and we do that to leach out a lot of the tannins. And as you know, you know, over-concentration of tannin can produce some of those woody and kind of off notes and, you know, make it a little bit more acidic. Uh, so that could be where people are starting to get some of that, you know, which you kind of reference as bad wood. It might just be, you know, young wood that's just not seasoned. Hmm. And air season versus like kiln dry, mm-hmm. like kind of explain, are you doing both? Are you not doing kiln? Like explain what the kind of differences for some listeners out there too. Yeah. So seasoning is when we, we cut down the tree, we process it into staves, we stack them up and then we set them outside for an extended period of time. For ISC, it's anywhere between six months to some of the wine material goes up 36, 48, but most for spirits, it's six to 24 months. And that is drying the wood much like a kiln would or much like a kiln does, I should say. But there are some other processes that are going on there um, as a result of kind of fungal growth on the wood. That doesn't sound good, but it is a really, really good thing where it is breaking down the wood and creating favorable extractives like vanillin, uh, like some of the hemicellulose degradation markers that actually, you know, we can perceive as a good taste. When you kiln dry, you still get down to that moisture content, the ideal moisture content, but you essentially erase all those benefits. So you don't get the the microbial growth. You don't get the tannins leaching out. All you get is the drying. So that's that's the difference there. See, it's good to have some microscopic worms in your wood. Yeah. After okay. all. Right? Well, I remember, you know, a lot of the leaks are caused by like, you know, the, will be like a some kind of microscopic pinhole from a, from a, from a worm. Uh, one of the things that's a trendy right now, and I, I don't know how much you play in this, are wood chips. Wood chips, mm-hmm. you know used to be like a dirty word in bourbon now like people are rushing to like throw crap in a in a tank mm-hmm. spirals there's yeah. all Heaps. kinds of other things yep. yeah i mean there's there's a lot of different things that people are out there doing now you, you i mean you, you said and, it, and to some extent oak alternatives the, oak yeah. alternatives and we have a whole separate division that that sells those so i'm not really on the forefront i do a lot for the makers mark alternatives just because the 46 and the private barrel program have mm-hmm. you know kind of exploded and i think I don't know that, about that you. Might, I, you might be right. That it's kind of like a it's an alternative of giving the stave from Maker's Mark. I mean, you're just putting it in a, a chip form, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, I mean, it's wood. It's just yeah, in it's a different, a different form. surface area, <laughs> yeah. different whatever. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. But yeah, uh, for some reason, chips still carry kind of the negative connotation. Staves just, I mean, stave finish sounds a little bit better than chip finished. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, well, it goes it goes back to historical documents. Like, I mean, they were it was banned, um, and it came up several times in federal code that, uh, you know, you could not add chips or staves or anything. But as soon as uh, Booker No did the barrel finish in 1999 and people started toying around with it, it just kind of, you know, it's kind of grown from there. Back when people couldn't sell it and they were like, oh, we got to do something different. So, yeah. 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 But it's been accepted in the wine industry forever. Well, right? I, th- and, I think the labeling restrictions are a little bit easier with wine, tequila, yeah. rum, that kind of thing, to where in some instances you probably don't even, well, I know in, in wine and tequila and rum, you don't have to say finish with chips or, you know, added chips up to a certain time period. You know, a lot of the wines out there, you know, that you see that have oaky taste that are under 20 bucks there's probably no chance they touched a barrel. It was probably barrel alternatives is, is I, I what think, was going on. I think it comes down to regulation and interpretation of it. And at some point, we should probably have like a couple like lawmakers and high profile lawyers, you know, study the definitions and say what's, you know, argue you, over it. But do you think, I mean, obviously makers is 
obviously doing it with stay finished and mm -hmm. other brands are, but do you think there's a uh, room for that space to grow in, in bourbon with not chips, but cube spirals, you know, other oak, oak alternatives that, so you don't have to use an entire new barrel or this or that, or as long as the producers are honest about, you know, the process and actually putting, you know, the necessary and educating the clients on the processes that they're doing. I sure hope so because Oak alternatives, they're just one of the greatest tools for flavor development. You can do so much more to a flat stave than you can a barrel in terms of, you know, you can add more flavors. You can toast one of those for 18 hours. You can toast yeah. a barrel for an hour and a half before you can, it you can toast both sides of the stave at that point. Right. Well, and we make staves, all four sides. We make, <laughs> we make staves that only, you know, toast on one side. And I think there was a couple of the wood finishing series for makers Mark, in which we only toasted it on one side or we, we soaked it in hot water and toasted it or not really toasted, it, but kind of sous vide it that way. Um, so there's a lot more possibilities when it comes to oak alternatives, and to be honest with you, I just it's a lot of fun for me. So is yeah. that what, that are you in that space? The oak alternatives is that part of your research too? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Are you in that space? The alternatives? Is that part of your research too? Designing the new products. You know, if the, the, the Oak Alternative Division comes to me, they say, hey, we got an idea for this. You know, I'll work to develop the product and, you know, they can test it out. I do dabble in a little bit in terms of like, hey, if somebody comes and says, hey, we got an idea, we want to do this kind of flavor. And I say, well, why don't you try Oak Alternatives? And I can kind of guide them through that process. But we mostly have a division that handles that. Now, all the Maker's Mark stuff, you know, that goes through me. And then we do all those staves at the Research Center. But most of the Oak Alternative products, 99% of them are created at the uh, Missouri Cooperage under the guidance of the Oak Alternative Division. I kind of want to know more about the sous vide. Yeah, I know. I, like, I want, you said sous vide. No, I, like, I want to be one of the first to sous vide. Wait a Instead minute. Instead of toasted, I want <laughs> sous, <laughs> sous vide. <laughs> sous vide finished bourbon. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's you know, we have water bent barrels. You know, we're, we, it's you know mostly for the wine industry, but we, you know, we bend barrels through steam. We bend them over fire, uh, which is more the traditional method. And we also bend them in water. So we kind of just decided, hey, let's put a tank stave in the water and turn up the heat and just see what happens. Well, so. that's one way to do it. I yeah. mean, that's research, right? Well, it's yeah, <laughs> trial and error mostly, I'd say. It's just kind of throwing darts. And that's a fun part of the job is just kind of throwing darts and just kind of seeing 
you know, the technology we develop or the, 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 the methods we develop might not be used. It might not go anywhere, but they're fun to try at least. Sure. What was the hypothesis in something like that to say, yeah, let's just go ahead. We'll take some stays. We'll throw them in a, basically a, a boiling bath and see what happens. Like what was the, what would you think was going to happen with it? Just reduce the tannin content. So when you do a double barrel, without getting too far into the science of it, I know people say, oh, well, yeah, when you double barrel, you're going to put more tannin into the barrel. But whenever you double barrel something, the tannin perception really hits very, very hard, very, very quickly. And it shouldn't because when you toast a barrel or when you char a barrel, tannin is the most heat sensitive compound that we have. So theoretically, you know, it should go to the very, very back of the stave. And if you're only going to be double barreling for like eight weeks, you really shouldn't get a whole lot of tannin. But for whatever reason, uh, when you double barrel, especially French oak, you get a very, very heavy tannin perception pretty much right away. So the whole idea behind the sous vide stave was it was a double barrel application for the most part. It was double oaking. And we just wanted to reduce that that tannin perception because it was going to be in contact with the whiskey longer than eight weeks. I got a question for you. I'm glad you brought up French oak. So i dabbled with our brand with some French oak mm-hmm. stuff and it's like there's like peaks and valleys with it it's like you know you'll leave the French oak in there and it's like just for example seven days in you're like oh my gosh it's incredible then two days later you're like oh my god it's bitter and then you wait two more weeks you're like oh my god it's better and then you wait a week and you're like oh it's bitter it's like peaks and valleys so what's going on there yeah it happens with the same <laughs> in American oak just not as quickly I mean French oak is a little bit more porous has a little bit more surface area within the wood so you do get faster extraction and faster changes with the flavor you know, it's just part of, I, I don't really know how to explain it 100%, but when you do bottle soaks or when you do uh, double barrel applications, you know, a lot of those different compounds are coming in and they have to go to equilibrium, right? So that everything has to just kind of come in, set, get to where it's happy, and then other compounds will come in. So with other compounds coming into solution, um, you have given a chance for other compounds to kind of rise up and make themselves known. So they get a little bit more higher perception. So essentially, when you double barrel something or do like a maker's mark application, you have these kind of peaks and valleys where certain flavors disappear. They come back, new flavors appear. And again, it's kind of that equilibrium process. So if one of your customers is like, all right, I want to do French oak or American oak or whatever, do you have like a, a guideline, you know, say, all right, this is what you're going to probably get this many days, that, you know, so they know to like check it, you know, kind of like a... With an instruction manual with this particular wood <laughs> with certain toast profiles yes we know exactly like it for uh, like a pure two toast profile which is one of the ones that makers mark uses on the private select you know we know what's going to happen at three weeks you know vanilla is going to be really really high then it's going to go down for custom toast profiles like we do for like the makers mark wood finishing series we're kind of exploring new ground uh we really don't know how those peaks and valleys are going to hit so we always just inform people hey you want to start tasting the product two to three weeks after contact, taste every single week, and then write down the flavors and let us know what flavors you like. That way we can, you know, we can kind of better target it in the final product. Then when does it hit like, I guess, diminishing returns, you know, so or, or like full extraction? And The farthest I've taken out a tank stave in an application, like a double oaking, was about 12 weeks. And then it just gets way too tannic and way too woody and over extracted. But 12 weeks, depending on the, the conditions in the warehouse, is anywhere between 2 to 12 weeks is kind of that sweet spot. Yeah, because makers, they put it basically in their, their cavern where, yeah. they, where they hold everything. So it doesn't have a big temperature fluctuation, yeah. but it's just sitting there in kind of like a, a good idle state, I yep. guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Is that Were you part of that research to try to figure out like, hey, do we put this back in the warehouse? Do we put it here in this... Basically, like we're going to keep it a solid 62 degrees for I, the next few weeks. No, no I was not. The, the Maker's 46 
predated my tenure or not tenure, but my uh, time at ISC. So that was done uh, by you know a combination of the guys at Makers and then a couple guys, David Yodra, who does my job on the wine side for ISC, and then a guy who was my predecessor named Ed Larmy. So those guys helped Makers kind of develop that, and then I think it was up to Makers to decide whether. You know, they were going to say, okay, gets, this doesn't work in the summer. It's better doing it in the winter months, and that's when they decided to build this. Yeah, they found the inconsistencies uh, when it was in the in the summer. And, and like, I remember that, that time interviewing Bill Samuels and Kevin Smith about that process, and they described it as, like, cooking a steak, like, Pittsburgh style, you know, with the, with the staves. So, you know, Makers is, they really did bring a lot of technique to that. Has anyone else, you know, developed a, a similar stave insert like them, or is it you know, they just are they just dropping them into the barrel or into the tank? With the at least the customers that I deal with, which you know, there's about 350 craft distillers, and then the, you know the big guys. Oh boy, it's a big uh, Rolodex. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, nobody has really, you know, it, you know, taken that kind of application and ran with it. Now there are some people who do like you know, some gift shop releases, um, but they usually just order, you know, something kind of off the shelf, so to speak, a product that we already make. But uh, no, nobody's taking it to the level of, of makers. And so another idea on the, the maker side is they're continually trying to innovate and you are trying to continue to innovate. How are ideas formed of figuring out like, you, you talked about these new toast profiles, like how do you, do you, can you not sleep at night? And you're like, oh, God, I got this idea. We're doing marshmallow toast. Like, I mean, how does how does those ideas like kind of form? 95% of the ideas come from Maker's Mark as far as, hey, we have this idea for a new product or we have this idea for a flavor vision. But uh, yeah, 90, the majority of the ideas are, they're all developed, uh, envisioned by by the team over there at Maker's. Is that is that like with all brands or do you all like create visions to sell to people? We do. So there, it's a combination. Some people, they come to us with an exact flavor vision and marketing everything behind it. A good portion, I would say, you know, that we have an idea. We want to develop, you know, this liquid stream. We have this liquid stream and it might be like a three-year-old rye or something like that. We don't know what to do with it. And in that case, what I'll do is I'll take it in the lab and I'll do 10 to 12 different, you know, variations on the liquid stream. And I'll just kind of give it back to them. They'll taste and say, oh, we can, we can make an idea out of this. Um, and that's, that's another way that it happens as well. And and so last time we talked, we talked about, um, you know, obviously there's different chars three and four, but I think a lot of distilleries, I think you had mentioned last time we're moving to maybe like a char one to get, kind of get some more flavors faster in the, the distillate at younger ages. How, How's that been going? I guess since we last talked, are people embracing that? Or yeah, they're 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 definitely embracing it. As and as we pull uh, more samples from our experiments and we taste people on the lower char levels, they are gravitating towards it a lot more. So about ninety five percent of the innovation barrels that I do for companies now are all char one, and there's a couple of different reasons for that. A lot of the innovation that I do for companies are com- younger companies that don't have you know older stocks. Char ones develop about anywhere between a year to two years faster than a char four. Now the flavors aren't really any different. The key flavor difference between a char one and a char four. So if you looked at a flavor profile on a GCMS graph or the, a chemical analysis, you would see that the char fours and char ones look very, very similar. The only difference are is that the char ones have higher concentrations of the components and they have a significantly higher concentration of the sweet components. 
And it just so happens that, you know, as human beings, you know, they say vanilla is the catnip for humans. Yeah. You know, human beings, they, they like sweeter flavors. So that's, I think, one of the main reasons people gravitate towards the char one is that they're sweeter. They have anywhere between 20 to 30% more vanillin. And they develop about, if you, and if you, if you look at development as the concentration of barrel extractives in a whiskey, they develop about a year or two quicker than the char four does. So it takes, Let's just say where it takes, you know, a char one, a certain extractive concentration is representative of whiskey aged in a char four barrel for four years. All right. That's kind of our baseline. It only takes char one anywhere between two to two and a half years to get to that extractive concentration. What about the color difference? Is there is it pretty identical or is it look more like dark versus hay or copper versus something that's lighter? So we measure all of our all of our experiments, all the color on what is called a UV vis, and we measured on what's called a Lobobon scale. So if you measured on a Lobobon scale, the char ones are about two to three shades darker. And what that translates to is that it's not going to be the difference between like hay and amber, but you can visually see it very easily with the human eye that it is going to be about two or three shades darker. Mm. And the reason of that is that, you know, the charring on a char one, obviously it's less intense. And it just so happens that a lot of the compounds, a good majority of the compounds that are responsible for color, in whiskey, they are destroyed at very high temperatures, right? Or, I'm, excuse me, very, very low temperatures. So when you char the hell out of a barrel, you destroy more of those compounds. So char one preserves those compounds. So you're like, okay, char one's definitely better for younger distillate. Mm-hmm. Where, at what point should I move to thinking back to three or four? That's a really, really good question because it's not something that you can actually, that I've noticed you can measure by looking at extractive concentration because there's a lot more facets to maturation than just looking at barrel extractive concentration. As it turns out, if you age a whiskey even out, you know, five and a half, six years, and you look at the extractive concentration, char one still will have a slight increase over the char four. But it seems to me that around the six, seven year mark, char threes, char fours, they start to overtake the char one in terms of quality. I don't know if, and I don't know why that is. It just seems like everything, all the flavors are better integrated. So, this is just my opinion. Like when I'm giving advice to somebody and they, they say, you know, what kind of barrel do we need to use for this product? I say, well, if it's going to be in the barrel, you know, six years plus, I would start going with the heavier chars. And again, I don't really have any empirical evidence to support that other than just sensory analysis. Because sure. again, if you look at the GCMS, char one still has more barrel extractives, but there's something else going on there when it hits a certain time that, you know, char threes and char fours just excel at. And what about threes and fours? Why, what's like, you know, they seem to get grouped together is like pretty similar, but then why is there a difference in number? I don't really know why we, I mean, that charring system wasn't, you know, solidified until the 1950s. And I'm not really sure, uh, you know, how it all came about or how the times came in. But again, just like the char one, you will get the exact same flavors that you will in a char four. Same thing with the char three, the char three will develop a little bit quicker. So you will, you will get to that kind of key extractive concentration a little bit sooner albeit not that much, but the char threes do develop a little bit quicker. I'm thinking, I'm thinking like looking at a bell curve of like where, <laughs> like where the, where the peaks are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if, and if you look at, you know, what we did is we took essentially kind of like a puck, we lined it with thermocouples, put it back in the barrel and then charred the barrel. So you can kind of see the heat as it moves through the barrel. So essentially what it's doing is it's taking those compounds that we perceive as favorable, you know, like the, the smoke, spice, sweet compounds, and it moves them just a little bit closer 
to the surface that is in contact with the whiskey. What if I want to put on the top or bottom floor? <laughs> well, does, it, does that throw a curveball in your? No, it definitely does. And we just uh, we just did an experiment with the guys over at Willet where we put ten barrels, identical barrels on each floor, and then we measured the temperature and humidity on each floor, and then we also got samples back, and that was really really fascinating in the sense that I learned that it's not temperature that is driving the differences as you might think it would be as you know you say oh it gets hotter and that's why they age a little bit quicker that's why they get extracted temperature is actually not the driving force in warehouse okay. dynamics I feel like we're on a mythbusters episode please keep pressure <laughs> yeah uh yeah to by extension it is pressure so if you look at the curves and the temperature readings on floors you know one two three and four because they have five-story warehouses the extractive curves are very, very, or I'm sorry, the temperature curves are very, very similar. You might only have, you know, for an average temperature, maybe a couple degrees off and then only maybe three or four degrees between the hottest temperature on the fourth floor and hottest temperature on the third floor. But when we looked at the whiskey, the extractive concentration for floor three was nowhere near what it was on floor four. So that was like, okay, so something else is going on. Well, when we looked at the data and we measured out the amplitude on each of those temperature curves, what we noticed is what the amplitude was just crazy on the fourth floor and not so much on the third floor. So the temperatures were pretty much the same, but the speed at which they cycled through those temperatures, and again, driving pressure being, you know, temperatures are function or pressures a function of temperature, that is the driving force behind the differences in the warehouse. Not temperature, it's how fast or slow and how the amplitude of that temperature curve. In other words, you know, going from 60 to 80 is a lot more influential than going from like 100 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that, mm. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of hard to explain with. Yeah. So basically, I guess how sensitive is the fluctuations? Is that right? Yeah. How, the fluctuation temperature and, you know, yeah. how fast it fluctuates is one aspect. And then what that fluctuation is, is more important than the actual, the numerical temperature value. So we're saying three is the kind of the sweet spot right there, the, the floor three. Well, on that particular warehouse, th between the floors three and four is really where the extractive curves and the flavor profile started to change immensely. And I got to imagine, too, if it's a heat-cycled warehouse, it might be very different. It would be extremely different. Yeah, and, th and that's one of the things that's happening now is, like, we're seeing all these different developments and how and where things are aged, not as it just – it's not no longer just, like, the heat-cycling – or uh, aluminum skinned warehouses or brick warehouses. I mean, there's a lot of effort to age things on rivers and uh, the ocean and uh, semi trucks and, and <laughs> semi truck. I mean, it's Which, all it's who, all over the place. It is. I mean, what's that? Is that Brad Paisley? That's Brad yeah. Paisley. Yeah. I, that's. It seemed like there'd be some legal issues with aging a bunch of sim like whiskey just going down the highway in a semi truck. I don't, I don't know. He said Skeeter took care of it. Yes, that's all right. That was, <laughs> that was a driver, Skeeter. Okay. <laughs> well, he was bonded. Yeah. You know, you've got that kind of, and then you got, I mean, you know, Trey's Zoller. I mean, he's got whiskey aging in duck blinds, you know, yeah. all yeah, across the country. True. And so, yeah, all of that definitely makes, you know, a huge difference in the overall flavor profile. Will you, will you change barrel based on where it's going to be aged? We certainly will. Yeah, absolutely. So with our, our good customers down in Texas, uh, we do have to take a little bit extra care to make sure that um, they can get to the age statement that they want to get to without it becoming either overly woody, overly extracted, or under-extracted. Because it's so hot there and in and, and the... Temperatures just so different than Kentucky, or yeah, and they actually have quite a bit of fluctuation at nighttime as well. It's yeah, because yeah. it can be fifty at night and 
Not yeah, and that, that yeah. and that, again, that's that's another thing. You know, th- their swing is in some areas a lot greater than ours. Now, you know, if it's just 150, 100, or not 115 degrees constantly, that creates a solubility issue where you can just bring so much more extractives into the whiskey because solubility goes up mm-hmm. as temperature goes up. And there are certain compounds that are very, very sensitive. Their solubility changes drastically with a temperature raise you know Mm -hmm. so all those compounds act differently do you find uh in your research on those graphs if you pull the whiskey say like coming out of winter or in the winter before summer out of summer Mm -hmm. you know like different flavor compounds at those different times of the year like the optimal time to be able to pull barrels Mm -hmm. yeah the only thing i mean they will taste different um you know based on a couple different things you know unlike all the barrel extractives in which their solubility goes up, meaning you can bring more. The hotter it is, you can have more barrel flavor in a grouping of whiskey or, or, or a clob of whiskey. But oxygen actually acts this, the opposite way. So as temperature goes down, you can bring more oxygen into your your whiskey. So that plays an effect. And from that warehouse experiment that we did in Willet, we know that all the whiskey between all the floors are going to be a lot more consistent when you pull those whiskeys in the winter. I see. Yep. There we go. Figured that one out. Mm-hmm. So the, the kind of last thing I'm going to gravitate towards is back to sort of like your, your research and experimentation, because at the very top of the show, you'd mentioned how you kind of got started doing some reviews and doing cigars and stuff like that. And even before we got started recording, you're talking about you were doing some things with smoke mm-hmm. and peated barrels. Yep. Kind of explain the idea behind that and sort of where that's right leading. Kenny's wheelhouse. Smoke. Mm-hmm. He loves smoke. I was, yeah. <laughs> I love my smoked old fashions, but hold the smoke. Yeah. So for the peated barrels, that was kind of the first, you know, experiment that we did. So, you know, I'm a fan of scotch whiskey. I like it. And, you know, the, the peat is... It's kind of an issue. Well, it's kind of, well, I don't know if it's an issue or not. It's issue for me. It's a huge issue. issue. Yeah. I was like, get rid of it. Well, well, I, I mean, in terms of like supply, like it's, it's like kind of, it's oak in a sense that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very slow growing resource. So, you know, the thought was, is that, is there any way that we can add this flavor and not use so much peat? So when these guys make, you know, batches of scotch whiskey, they can use up to, you know, 11, maybe for a small batch, 1100 pounds of peat. So we decided like, well, maybe we can smoke peat infuse it into the barrel and then use a lot less. And that's kind of what we did. And that's what started this whole thing. So we, when we smoke a barrel, we use about an eighth of a pound of peat. So it's a really, really efficient way. And that, that was kind of the genesis of that is just trying to figure out a more efficient way of adding these types of flavors. And then, you know, since then we've tried, uh, you know, Jason, I'm sure all you guys mm-hmm. know Jason oh, Bronner, but yeah. uh, you know, I, me being a cigar guy I said, Hey, I want to take this peat and I want to try it with tobacco leaves. So I got some tobacco leaves, some cigar tobacco leaves from Kentucky and uh, smoked the barrel with tobacco. And that's his cigar rye that he just came out with. What do you do? You just, you just like stick a hose in there and start shoving smoke in until it seal it up until it can't take any more smoke. Like what's the, that was kind of the genesis of it. When, when we first started doing this, we had a very, very, just a very, very simple apparatus. Now we have a, a, a production machine that essentially what it does is it, uh, we don't use any open flame. We just kind of heat the material till it starts to smoke. It doesn't really burn, but it starts to smoke. And then we pump the smoke into the barrel. And then we, once it's done, going through its cycle, we filter it back out. 
So I'm just seeing so many possibilities here. Marijuana barrels. Uh, especially know. when he said to ate the pound. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's where my mind went. No, it is. It's opened up. Start talking to Graham soon. Yeah. <laughs> Dime bag. It, it's been a fun few months experimenting with that. I, you know, I call it technology. I don't know if it's really a technology or not. Application is probably a better word for it. Uh, but yeah, we've tried everything. And um, we have hickory smoke barrels now. We have apple smoked. We have peat. Tobacco smoked. Was the one at Hartford maple smoked? That or? was maple smoked. Yeah, that, 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 that was actually uh, our first experiment. I said, hey, I got this idea for wood smoked, and he took about four or five barrels, and he actually loved it. Yeah, we uh, tried it, and because normally we don't, Kenny and I are in the same way, we don't like smoke, and uh, it was actually really good. You know, it was nice and subtle. Got a lot subtle, of those sweet maple flavors. Subtle, smoke. subtle then, smoke. Well, Basil Hayden, subtle smoke, they, you know, they, oh, that's right. they tasted they some of it. the samples, and they liked it, so... You know, that was kind of a project that was born from just this idea of just pretty much just dicking around. Yeah, I mean, because it's true is what it is. It's like the, the key word was subtle there. It, it, it's not overly, it's it's not like you are trying a, a peated scotch for the first time and you're just overtaken and overwhelmed by it. But instead, it brings a different characteristic to it that enhances if a lot of people are getting a, a mesquite or smoky character, it's like you're definitely going to get it on this type of whiskey now. Yep. Fred, as you said, it kind of opens up a realm of possibility and I'm curious about a lot of illegal drug activity. Can happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about all that, but I, I'm uh, we've kind of expanded on that, and you know we've developed a new machinery that can not only take you know solid material, but it can take liquid material and kind of atomize it into a dried dust for the most part. Technically, is what it is, and you know infuse barrels with that. Now we haven't like Gatorade smoked. Like, is that what you're thinking? Like, uh, I mean, theoretically, you 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 could. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know if anybody would go for that, but. Yeah, we're we we've developed the machinery to do it, and we'll be putting in our first experiment, kind of taking that a step further here in probably the next month. Wow. Yeah, I think before we were talking about uh, trying to recreate like a sherry cask or a port cask without having like an actual port cask or something. Yeah, that's the idea, and that was the idea behind the peat is can we make this process more sustainable and still get the exact same flavor. Um, and these things could be bourbon without ever having to go into a used barrel. True. Yeah. I mean, this is like this is revolutionary. This is groundbreaking. <laughs> well, we'll we'll see how the the industry. Sometimes it's you we'll know, take samples. <laughs> sometimes the indi- like you, dev- you 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 show it to people and you're like, oh, that's really really cool, but we have no place for it. But uh, the peat has done well so far. The smoke barrels have done pretty good. And you know, there's been a couple different products that are on the shelf now that were uh, created using that that application. So that's it's awesome. yeah, it's done pretty good. Well, it's good to see a lot of innovation, a lot of cool things are happening. And Andrew, thank you so much again for coming on the show and giving some more in-depth stave science and everything else that we're all still learning about. I think you're you're a wealth of information. It's always good to have you on to really nerd out and kind of give this whole facet, this side of the process that necessarily doesn't get, it, it's overlooked to the point, right? Because everybody thinks about the whiskey, but it's all about the generation, the time that it's spent in the barrel and the science that you all are creating to be able to take it and actually make this final product out of it. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure hanging out with you guys. And this stuff's fun for me to talk about. So I definitely appreciate you guys having me on. Well, good. And next time I, I will bring some, be a good show. I'll bring, I'll bring the char one, two, three, and four samples. And then you guys can taste through them and tell me what you guys think. And we can okay. kind of, yeah. we're here for, we it. can do want, an on-air blind taste. I want the anim- atomized cannabis. Bring that with you too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully do it before lunch. Yeah. You, yeah, you can get your munchies afterwards. That's right. <laughs>
<laughs> but with that, you know, thank you again, Andrew, for coming on. Thank you, guys. You, know, you can always find everything about ISC on their website, Independent Stave. They do tours and all kinds of the stuff, and they've got a lot of things in the works. They're growing. They're trying to create more barrels every single day. So thank you for all that you're doing and helping to grow the industry as well. But make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit as well as on all your socials and share the podcast with a friend. It's the best way to kind of get it out there and make sure that people that if they're getting into whiskey, they think they love whiskey, have them show an episode like this so they can really understand the science and the fun things that are happening behind it as well. But with that, cheers, everybody. And we'll see you next week.